93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. Let's get into it. Welcome to another enlightening episode of The Founder Hour. Today we have the distinct honor of hosting an entrepreneurial luminary whose journey has left an indelible mark on the business world. Our guest, Paul Orfala, isn't just any entrepreneur. He's the brilliant mind behind Kinko's, a company that redefined the business services landscape. Paul founded Kinko's in 1970 with a simple idea and a $5,000 loan. What began as a small coffee shop in Isla Vista, California, grew into a global phenomenon with over a thousand locations worldwide before being acquired by FedEx for $2.4 billion in 2004. Throughout our conversation, we'll delve into the fascinating details of Paul's incredible journey. From his early days printing term papers for college students to navigating the challenges of scaling a business, Paul's insights are invaluable. He's not only a successful businessman, but also a college professor and a passionate advocate for education and philanthropy, founding the Orfala Foundation to support children and families in need. Please enjoy our conversation with Paul Orfala. Paul, it's... Uh... You know, it's it's a pleasure to have you here. Finally, I know we've been trying to make this happen for a while, and uh, we were talking offline. But uh, ten years ago, you're my professor at USC, um, and you know, I just, you know, that class. I just want to. I think that class was one of the classes that, in kind of inspired me to even like do something like this podcast, because, you know, so many classes you just sort of sit and like listen to a professor like speak about a topic. But I remember your class was like just discussions. You would come in with like a newspaper and say. Let's pick up and you know something out of the newspaper and and talk about it. And it was just like hearing someone like yourself, who's like been a successful businessman, entrepreneur, talk about things like that. It just like gives you a different perspective than what's in the school books, I guess. What was the class um, for those that don't know your class? It was I forget the name. Was it what was the name? Survey of the and entrepreneurship. Was it? Or I think it's entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, I think that was the one. Yeah. It's right. entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah. We just sat around a big circle, like a table, and Paul would come in with like a, a newspaper and basically pick a story. No, I give it to you beforehand. Or you would give it, yes, exactly. We have to, wouldn't read it beforehand. Yeah. You just read it there. No, but you read the, you're supposed to come in with questions about the articles. That's right. That's right. I would do it right before class. That's yeah. right. Where would you take the articles from? Various newspapers from New York Times to Wall Street Journal, Christian Science Monitor to, uh, Local newspapers. Did you title that class? Oh, they I didn't. They invented the name. So USC invented it. They're like, hey, Mr. Orfalo, come up with a curriculum. And you're like, all right, I guess yeah. we'll have him read some articles. But you see, <laughs> I, I, like, I think that smart person has answers. A wise person has questions. Mm-hmm. And so I try to cultivate the instinct and curiosity in the students. Yeah. It's interesting. You, Actually, Paul, uh, not Paul, uh, uh, the 
interview we just had with Doug Burgum, you know, I feel like the main theme of that entire podcast for an hour and a half was curiosity. Right. And he, you know, he talked about the entrepreneurial mindset. Um, where do you think you got your curiosity from? I don't know. I maybe, I don't know. They say that when you're two years old, why a child stops asking questions is it not that they're not curious anymore. They detect it irritates the other person. Hmm. But the most precious word in the vocabulary is why. Right. And I, I kind of think if you can tell how your if your child has a good education, if they're asking enough whys at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. I remember you used to say um, something about Hawaiian gardens. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you still say that? Yeah. Hawaiian what? <laughs> what was what was the reason for that? You would well, say was, something like you don't want to end up at Hawaiian gardens. Well, because Hawaiian gardens is near in Los near Los it's Angeles. A, it's like a retirement home, no? No, it's a it's sort it's of an uh, area. Yeah. It's kind of a rough area. There's bars in the window, and I just think it might be a difficult place to raise your children. <laughs> so I, whenever they bring up something that's not very enlightened, I'll say, well, that's a really good question. I'm sure you're going to end up in your Hawaiian gardens. <laughs> that would be like the answer every time. I love it. Interesting. Um, so kind of, uh, so I guess let's talk about like what young Paul was like, just to kind of give a context of, of how you ended up where you ended up. Um, what as far back as you can remember, like what was what were your interests? Like what did you like to do as a kid? I like saving money. Okay. And I always knew that I would do something with money. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think you have with children, you have one of two choices. They either be good at the school or they better be good with money. You're good in school, you become a doctor or a lawyer, something professional. But if you but if my, I knew my skills was and all my relatives, they did something with their savings account and their money. Mm-hmm. But you have to have money to save it. So did, I mean, how are you getting this money? Oh, I get an allowance. I was miserly stingy. And uh, I'd always hustle. And I remember one time I saved, and I bought a, took $2.50 and bought a slingshot. And I was so pissed at myself to spend that money. I was really frugal. I wouldn't, my parents would give me money, I wouldn't buy the, I wouldn't buy anything. I kept a notebook how much money I could save. Where, where do you think that came from? Well, my parents and my family. It's not how much you make, honey. It's how much you save. Yeah. You know, when you're young, the money works for you. you when you're young, you work for the money. And when you're old, the money will work for you. Right. And I'll, I, had, I must have 500 relatives in Southern California. And I never knew a human being that ever had a job. They had their own business. And so they were always talking about an apartment building they bought or a stock or something. And as a child, I just want to be a participant in their conversation. Do you think that, I mean, we were talking about how your family is originally from Lebanon and and kind of the Middle East area. Do you think that it was that kind of mindset that was passed down from generation to generation of like, you know, run, you know, build your own business, be your own boss type of thing? I kind of think we came from where I'm a peddler. Yeah. And my ancestors are peddlers. In fact, my grandmother was uh, in the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, and she sold apples door-to-door with a woman named Hannah Nafee. Okay. And Hannah Nafee's son started United Artists. Okay. But we were peddlers. You, yeah. There's, you, yeah, uh, selling something was just what part of the life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any other career aspirations, or did you think like... No. Isn't that scary, though? Like, how did you know what you would... What kind of business you would start? Oh, and you just see opportunity everywhere. It's not just yeah. If you have your mindset to 
have your own business, you just, you know, you drive down the street, you see somebody in line, you say, well, why are they in line? You know, uh, how the United States gave, allegedly gave the atomic bomb to Russia. Mm-hmm. We had these vicious spies and all that. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. The way we gave the, the Russians got the atomic bomb is it exploded. Mm-hmm. The Russians said, well, there's a bomb that works over there. Let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. Every day, you're surrounded by success. Just keep your eyes open. I mean, you watch every the- time you see somebody in line, every time somebody used to irritate me to no end in my own business, I'd travel with the people I worked with, and I'd say, well, tell me about the competition. And they'd say, oh, they're terrible, blah, 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 blah. And I'd say, if they have one customer, they're doing something right. What are they doing right that we can learn from? Mm-hmm. But if you have the mindset that things work, and they work very successfully here, we all stop at red lights, we go on green lights, there are people in line that want something, and you have that mindset that it works. It's not dysfunctional. That people go to work to do a good job. They don't go to work to do a bad job. That people are honest, have a lot of integrity, I believe. I think you're going to have a more of a mindset of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, I don't know what it is. I mean, some people see it better than others. I'm, I'm just curious, like, if you had, like, some sort of approach or it just came naturally to you of, like... Well, I, I can't read very well. Uh-huh. I'm not mechanical. Mm-hmm. So if you can't read or fill out a form or fix a machine, you don't have a lot of job prospects. Right. And uh, unfortunately, the armed forces, you know, the Army, Navy, Marines, they weren't going to adapt to my style. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of figured that uh, I'd have to do it my own. Mm-hmm. How, how early on did you figure that out? S- second grade, first grade, I just knew it. What, what, what led you to believe? And the reason I ask is I don't think first and second graders are listening to us. But parents of first and second graders might be listening to us, and they might be seeing kind of the same things in their children. And we live in a very interesting world today, with you know, you know, the way politics work, with how technology is advancing. What were some of the things that you saw in yourself that perhaps you know parents listening out there or grandparents listening out there can see in their children? Well, uh, uh, my mother would say to me, you know, honey. If you work for other people, you're only as good as yesterday's paycheck. People that work for other people, they spend whatever they make. They have no savings. And I just would hear, hear that uh, all the time. Mm. That, honey, save your money, and there'll be an opportunity. And then I just had a mindset to see people in line and see re- and every time there's a transaction, wherever it is, that's a success story. And are you studying success? Now, I had this, we, we had uh, a thousand retail stores by the time I left my uh, Kinko's. And my job wasn't to worry about the bad stores. My job was to go to the successful stores and understand why they were successful. Mm-hmm. And I spent all my time in the good stores understanding why they were successful. My theory is in the with the, th- the good stores will bring the bottom ones up. And the reason you have executives really is to worry about the bottom 10%. Mm-hmm. So that's where I spent my time, understanding why people were doing well. And every one of our locations, they were doing something smart. Uh-huh. Was it different from location to location? Or it was. It was it- surprising. Every location I went into, you could learn from. Interesting. Yep. 
I'm not sure how to phrase this question, but I'm just going to try to put it out anyways. Let's hear um, it. You talk about people waiting in line, right? Transacting. Americans love waiting in line. I think that's one thing that, um, you know, <laughs> restaurants and you go, you wait in line. People love waiting in line. I hate waiting in line. I just want to just cut right in and figure out a way to get in. You obviously also hate waiting in line because you didn't want to go and take a job and work for somebody else and do the thing that everybody's supposed to do, right? A different way of waiting in line. Yet starting a business is a way to serve others who like to wait in line. How do you switch that mindset from, I am my own business person, I have a business, but I want to get people to wait in line? Uh. I don't get the question. I don't either. <laughs> but I wanted to phrase it because what I'm trying to get at is you it's almost like yeah, yeah. you don't have the mindset of waiting in line, yet you're creating a business that ideally gets people to wait in line, uh, to, even if to they, yearn for that. If they didn't have to wait in line, they could send orders in digitally. It didn't right. matter if they were in line or not. Right, right. The, 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 whether it's physical line or digital line doesn't matter. But to essentially yearn for your product, yearn for your yeah. service. Yeah. So how do you, how do you as an entrepreneur put yourself in that mindset of that individual? Oh, because your empathic behavior, your empathetic, you understand what a customer goes through to get their whatever their needs satiated. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a funny story. I have a cousin that owns a successful business, and he will deliberately slow service down, right. keep the lines long because crowds attract crowds. Yeah. And it's surprising, but he would slow down his line. So there'd be a perception of a longer line. Correct. That's how Holland raises. Yeah, so many businesses. I mean, especially retail businesses, restaurants. Right. You know, you walk by and you see a line, you get intrigued. You're like, what's yeah. going on in there? You know? And you go to an empty restaurant, you're afraid to go in. Right. Exactly. Why is it that we work that way? Why are our brains that way? Well, success breeds success. Crowds attract crowds. You know, I, th I feel like, and, and this was uh, everything I hear you're saying now, and also from what I remember 10 years ago in your class, you just have a really good pulse on psychology, like how people think and how people look at things, especially like when it comes to business. Where did that come from? Well, empathic you behavior. You know, the first quality a child get, uh, in, in baby, as a baby, gets is empathic behavior. And the last quality you, you lose and Alzheimer's or dementia is empathic behavior. We're empathic human beings. And I th if it's that empathic behavior that you see somebody in line and you see their needs, it's that comes from, I understand what you're going through. Mm -hmm. But where does, where does that come from for you? Like your understanding of that? I don't know. Maybe I was hard. You know, I think maybe it was genetically wired in me. Yeah. You never like studied it. You never... No, how do you study it? empathic well, behavior? In an just, empathic entrepreneurship mindset class. Well, maybe, but I just, well, maybe because I got rejected so much as a child. Uh, I got rejected in schools. I was expelled from one school. And the vice principal told my mother, from John Burroughs Junior High in L.A., she told my mother. Was that in Burbank? No, it was in junior high. It was in L.A. Highland, John Burroughs? Junior high in Highland. In, uh, oh, you're thinking Washington. of John Burroughs High School. Oh, oh okay, got it. Yeah. So, uh, the vice principal to said to my mother, you know, Mrs. Orfala, one day, if Paul can really apply himself, maybe he can learn to lay carpet. Wow. And it was like, my mom came home and said, I just know you can do more than that. But I didn't necessarily have... Uh, Did that affect you at that time? I'm sure it does. You make you numb, doesn't it? You, you're considered an idiot in school. Uh, you're always in like the... Uh, 
slow group. I had to go to one time, I had to go to UCLA. There's a school back then called Clinic School. Clinic? That, yeah, Clinic. You imagine a five-year, fifth grader, fourth grader going, I'm going to Clinic School. Do you think you feel like you're a dummy? Mm. Yeah. So I don't think... Uh, Did you feel this need to like prove people wrong? No. You didn't care as much? I, I was numb as a child, just numb. Yeah. It's just incoming, incoming, incoming. And you just become hardened to it. Rejection from social groups, rejection from uh, school. Were you somebody that made friends easily? Were you like social? I was able to make my best friend Danny Tavrizian. He was like the most popular guy in grade school. Mm -hmm. And he liked me. And we became best friends. And he was the most, the president of the class. And him and I became best friends. And I kept saying to myself, well, if Danny likes me, I must be okay. I mean, it turned out that you were probably right about that. Well, it was good that he liked me, but I, <laughs> I think I had a lot of incorrigible. Uh, yeah. But he was like, that's like one example. Did you, ha were you someone that was like popular in school? No, 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 no. Yeah. You weren't like the social butterfly? No, I would say. I was, exp I was expelled, literally dung from a fraternity. Yeah. Uh, Sigma Chi house at USC. Uh -huh. Oh, you were expelled from USC? No, the Sigma Chi fraternity house. Got it. And it was actually the best experience because I got, was really down and depressed the day I got the next day. And I said, you know, from now on, I'm not going to be anybody I'm not. I'm going to just be me. And I just, that my personality is shy. Are you but you know, when you're younger, you want, you see these uh, people that are socially cool and all accepted. You want to be like them. And you, you adapt, you think you adapt who you are to, to fit their mode. But by being rejected from the fraternity, I said, you know, I don't really care. I'm going to be me. And it was really a good epiphany. Mm. Are you able to share why you got expelled? Oh, I, I was sort of a, oh. Uh, you know, I never got along with the, uh, like, re Republicans. Uh, <laughs> you know, the straight A, the straight A, normal people. I just, wasps? Well, wasps are just, <laughs> just people that live the, normal pathway just like a life. vanilla life yeah i just never they never found me they always found me a little peculiar yeah yeah you uh so where does it where does the name kinko come from oh it's my nickname because of my yeah. hair so you had or like red hair i had kinky hair kinky hair ah, so my nickname was kinko yeah. but prior to being kinko my nickname was pube head <laughs> okay that was so, the, that was the r-rated version yeah so <laughs> if if you were a pube head and you get the nickname kinko you kind of get a promotion. It could have been, yeah. could have been FedEx Pubos, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a much, I don't know, more marketable name. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so you, you look different than a lot of other people. Even now? No, no. No, no, I'm now like, you look now, just yeah, yeah, like you everybody. You can't see the, did you, did you dye your hair? Or just, no. <laughs> no, I never dyed it. Yeah. yeah. But, no, but back like, then it was kind of cool <laughs> because I did, I had kinky hair and I remember, uh, I would put this nylon stock in my mother would, and I'd get this stuff to straighten my hair. And so that for a while, they called me Strato. <laughs> a lot of good business names in there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting how it took a moment like that in your life where you had to be pulled out of something to then bring you back down to your authentic self of, you know what, I don't actually have to conform to that, to what I, I actually am not just to fit in. Yeah, and, you know, I feel like today, you know, 
I mean, we've now mentioned it multiple times, and everybody on this podcast knows that both Pat and I are Armenian. But it almost feels as though when we were growing up, when Pat and I were growing up, being Middle Eastern, being Armenian, or anything of that nature, you were you were the odd man out. Nowadays, you know, fast forward to twenty first century, everybody's yearning for this identity, culture, you know, cultural identity yeah. to attach themselves to something. Um, you know, obviously having your Lebanese Middle Eastern background that already existed. Um, but talk to us about how your life, you know, changed when you recognized this well, is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. Well, you, you know, when they rejected you, I was in the bottom of the emotional sure. rung. Yeah. I was just really depressed. And so from there, you just resurrected who you are. I don't know what it was. It, I think uh, you don't have a choice, but you got to pick yourself up. I mean, I, I could have easily been defeated. and. Uh, Back then, I could have easily been defeated, but I uh, chose to. And luckily, when I discovered my that I my real personality, who I was, people started liking me. What was your real personality? Which what is who I am now? Who I am now? That's a good question. Who? What is your personality? Yeah. I think you're as you. What Bob Hope said. In your twenties, you really care what people think about you. In your forties. You don't really care what people think about you. Then when you get to be 60, you realize no one ever thought of you in the first place. Yeah. So having the mindset of your 60s and your 20s is... No, but 20s, you, it's very difficult because you're always defining yourself by others. Mm. And then if you have your own business, I carry that insecurity in my business. It, it, it propels you. What was I? Th I remember something about a pencil at a, at a something like at, in Santa Barbara. I started selling copies, and then I figured, well, the first day of school, everybody needs a notebook and pen, so I put my notebooks and pens on the sidewalk the first day of school. Yeah, I sold two thousand dollars a day worth of notebooks and pens. <laughs> uh huh. That's right. That's right. And then I would one time I was really nervy, you know, we we're all waiting in line for the bookstore. Yep. Yep. I put a bunch of notebooks and pens while they were waiting in line. Naturally, I got thrown off the campus. But after two hours of good sales, I didn't mind being rejected from there. What campus was this? UC Santa Barbara. UC Santa Barbara. So did you, you went there and then transferred to? Oh, you went no, to? I went to USC. USC for? Undergrad. Undergrad. And then UCSB? No, I started my business in Santa Barbara. Oh, I see. I see. You were just there, not as a student. You were no. there as a? I was, I, there was a Xerox place at SC. Uh -huh. And there were all these people in line. So I'm at Santa Barbara, and I figured, well, why wouldn't the same people? It's not you don't have to smoke a lot of pot and LSD and ruminate. You'd say, well, hell, the people there's people in line at USC. Why wouldn't these same people be in line at Santa Barbara? Uh -huh. It wouldn't didn't take a students or students. Yeah. So what even made you want to get into that business in the first place? I like money. <laughs> and why did you think that was a good way to make money? He well, saw I could, a line. I saw. I just could. <laughs> you I saw could, the line at the Xerox. No, show. I could count it. I I figured out. I sat in there and I saw how much they could do an hour. Okay. And I calculated it. Okay. And I figured, well, hell, I'll have my, and I calculated my break even point. And I knew I could hit it in Santa Barbara. And so you were going to do the same exact thing just in Santa Barbara? I, 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 the people at SC didn't do stationery. I did. And then I also had a, uh, a third thing I did film processing, like a photo mat mm -hmm. when film came in a cartridge. So all three worked in synergistic ways and the first store was the size of a garage i paid a hundred dollars a month rent mm -hmm. for some reason i was just imagining paul coming out to like a speaking event and it's playing instead of i saw the sign 
I saw the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. saw the line. Yeah. It opened up my eyes. I saw the line. <laughs> Have you heard that song? Yeah, it would be a great song. Yeah, it's a good song. That's a good but song. People, don't uh, see, people, for some reason, when they see a successful restaurant, like I, I love this thing called Hillstone Group. They have yeah, a place great. called... Uh, Houston's. Houston's, and they have one in Santa Barbara called... Honor Bar. Honor Bar. I sit in there, and I swear to God, I just look at it and go, what? And I'm everybody. Unbelievable operation. Everybody. So court, court, I've never seen a more well-run machine in yeah, that business. I agree. And it's, it's fun to look at. It's so fun you, to study. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people, when they think about starting a business, and, and for good reason, they think that they need to do something new and innovative that has never been done before. But sometimes it's just a matter of taking what's working somewhere and maybe doing it a little bit better or doing it somewhere that might need it more or whatever. Did you, what, was there anything different other than the stationery and all that kind of stuff that you felt oh, like? I did a few, a few things innovative. Yeah. I didn't like being in the stores. I hated, I didn't like the stores. Uh -huh. If I'm really good at something, I know I'm good at getting out of work. Yeah. At 25,000 workers, 30,000 workers, I had to get out of every job at that business. I'm good at getting out of work. If you're not too capable, you can't take yourself too seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I was always wandering. And, and one day I was wandering the reserve book room. In a university back many years ago, the professor would leave things on file at the reserve book room. And the professor would say, well, look, at, uh, you have to t read this article or this pamphlet or whatever. It's in the reserve book room. You have to read it before the final. I'm going to test you on it. So when do you think the students go to get the, get the book? The night before the test. Mm -hmm. And then at complicated courses like organic chemistry or competitive ones, some student would razor blade out the chapter so the other ones couldn't get it and they could get a better grade. So I had a little flyer, pass it out to all the college the professors saying, from now on, why don't you leave things on file with Kinko's as well as the reserve book room? Man, these professors loved it. I'll give you an example. At Ohio State, ultimately, wait, at that point, I knew I had a concept I could take across the country. Now, do I have to take a lot of rumination to say, I kind of think a school, a state might name a school after itself. Like, duh, Alabama, say University of Alabama. University of uh, Illinois. So at that point, I found out, we found out where all the college campus locations were. Mm -hmm. And we opened up there. And so you, you started with catering to colleges, students, yes. faculty, and that was like the initial yeah. yes. customer base. And then we're, we're doing well uh, at Ohio State, for an example. I believe we did 7% of the textbook at Ohio State. But what happened was, guess who didn't like us doing that? The Department of Education? No. The universities? <laughs> the no. publishers? The students? No, the publishers. Yeah. So they sued us. And I knew they, were gonna to, they didn't want to sue me in the Second Circuit. Ninth Circuit. That's the one California. in California. Yeah. Ninth Circuit is considered a bunch of Zulus, crazy people. They wanted to get me in the Second Circuit in New York. So we inadvertently Xeroxed one-third of a book of Doris Kearns Goodwin. Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote a book on LBJ. We Xerox copied it and said it was fair use. <laughs> uh, I didn't, that didn't work. So we got sued in New York. <laughs> got a, we got it annihilated in a lawsuit. Annihilated. And How big judge, was Kinko's at this time? We had about 500 stores. It was massive. And we were doing about 800. <laughs> we were doing about... $800 million a year in business. Yeah. 
So uh, I had, I knew they were going to come after me. And we had a great, I had retained a consultant, a publisher consultant that was familiar with textbook manufacturers. And he went to bat for him. And so they invited me to give a speech to the publishers during the in period that they're going to write the injunction. Mm. Uh, Jim Lair from the McNeil Lair Report was the keynote speaker. And I had met him, I'm not name dropping, but I happened to be in the White House. Not I was honored at the White House for being a lousy student, seriously, from the lab school. And President Bush gave me the award. The, fa- the father or son? The good Bush, the father. <laughs> um, I met Jim Lair while I was waiting to see the president. And he, we started a conversation. And he gave the keynote address, and he put a plug in for us, Jim Lair. Mm-hmm. And saying, don't be afraid of technology. It's got to change, da, 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 da. And uh, then I went in there, and I surrendered. I said, we were so wrong. We didn't know what we were doing, blah, 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 blah. So they wrote an injunction that let us stay in business. But the injunction, uh, at that time, we might have well put up a sign in every college campus in America, need not, regular customers don't come in the first two weeks of school. We're just so damn busy. Uh, at the same time, all these high-tech companies were producing machines like computers and color things and oversized poster-making machines and banner machines and all that. So at that time, we repositioned the business to commercial location. Mm. And uh, maybe losing a lawsuit was probably fortuitous in the long run. Is this like the early 90s? Or? In 1990. 1990. And so, so after that point, like, did, did the business start to grow? Or? We always grew 30 35% a year, every year Consistent. as a business. Oh, okay. Except for the last couple of years. But the, I knew, and I, you know, my dad made women's clothes. And if you're a content owner, you got a real problem. Most content, busy, I've never been busy. I don't know what busyness is. I don't believe in busy. Okay. I believe in being in the moment and seeing what the hell's going on. And I knew how to get rid of all my administrative bur- burdens. So I'm always looking around and saying, who's the threat? And the laser printer was coming after me. I knew it was coming after me from left field, and I did not have an answer to it. Mm-hmm. And so, but you guys had a lot of locations. I we mean, had a, a thousand. Did you locations. feel like it was just like a land grab? Like I just need to cover as much ground as possible. No, at the time we were it was we were highly in demand. We had a yeah. good business. Yeah, uh, people needed copies. Mm-hmm. But every damn thing you can do on a copy, you can do down with a computer. You can fax. You yeah. can uh, do everything. What the hell did you need a? What do you need a copy? What do you need our business for? So. We were very popular. People thought we were the greatest things in sliced bread. I'm sitting there going, I'm not quite sure we have a future. You saw it coming. And what year is this around? 19, about 1996, 97. Mm-hmm. Which is when like, computers are really starting to be like, like PCs, home yeah. computers, Microsoft. And Hewlett Packard and yep. was coming out with some laser printers to wipe me out. Right. And I could see why would anybody take a piece of paper and put it on a glass when they could just produce it clearly from the computer. And so uh, here I am, the owner of the business that doesn't believe in the business. And I have all these workers that love it, and I'm trying to sell it. But I didn't believe in our future. Paul, during that time when you were building it, were you surprised at the success of Kinko's? Or was, was it just more so you were going about just building and there was really no thought behind it? I never felt successful in my business when I had it. Mm. The day I felt successful is the day I cashed the check. Yeah. 
I was under so much financial pressure. It was a private business. We were no investors or? No investors. Yeah. Subchapter S, I had partners, but working partners in every location that were partners with yeah. me. Great partners. But uh, uh, I didn't like, I never took any outside money. I'm curious what, when you saw the sort of revolution coming, uh, why didn't, I know you guys didn't actually make the printers yourself, but why didn't you think maybe I should get into that business? Like com- compete with HPs or, you know, those oh, no, I don't know. I'm sin. You, that wasn't my business. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any. Would it be me, a mechanical thing? Me designing <laughs> something mechanical? You that's could just like, hire someone to do it, right? Well, I, I don't think you, if that's your business, you better know a little bit about mechanics. Yeah, that's true. I don't think uh, I had any forte for it. So why do you think FedEx was so interested in it in the early 2000s? Oh, I knew it would be. I, was, I really wanted to sell the UPS. <laughs> I really did. I didn't yeah. like you. I didn't like FedEx. Okay. I remember uh, back in the early 80s, I wrote this guy, uh, what, Brett Smith, a letter. Uh, FedEx founder. And he doesn't respond. So then I, I, I said, well, Mr. Smith, I guess you didn't get a copy of my last letter. No response. So then I read a letter to his board of directors saying, you must have an incompetent chief executive that can't respond to a little letter like this. Man, his subordinates flew out. And we had a, started a relationship. But I want to read you the email I sent to Fred Smith, and he he had a pretty nice rejection. I'm not going to lie about being on the show. He said, "Uh, "I'm flattered by your invitation, but I rarely give personal interviews. I try to keep the focus on the 600,000 plus FedEx team members who work so hard every day to keep our global industrial, healthcare, and e-commerce supply chains (laughs) flowing." Regards, FWS. Well, he responded to you. He didn't <laughs> respond to me. And he was pissed because I wrote that letter to his board. Yeah. And every time I met him, he was kind of like brisk. Yeah. But I just think, how could he be that incompetent not to respond to a letter? But I'm curious why FedEx and UPS were like the main suitors. Like why? Uh, oh, I knew they would buy us. But what, did, um, where, where, where was the connection with like having because, coffee uh, shops? Whole, they, 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 they have to deliver packages. If you're not home, they need a place to leave it. So. I knew we were a great place for hold for pickup. Ah. So you, the FedEx person, if you have an, we're open 24 hours a day. Right. You can come by any time and pick up your package. Mm. And I knew the copier was, the, Got it. the technology we had was on the wayside. So I knew we would sell eat one or the other. And I really did court UPS. They took so, they, the so they Bowl. bought you guys because of the retail locations? No, they, they bought, I sold a group in New York and then they peddled it to FedEx. And did you own those locations or you were just leasing them? The retail locations? Yeah. I bought some of them. Okay. Not enough. But like that was a big reason, like the hubs where you guys were was a good hub for having like drop off packages. Yeah, yeah. Pickups and things like that. But I would buy, uh, yeah. Yeah. But what happened is our stores went, not only did we expand in numbers of locations, we expanded in width of location. The first location was 100 square feet we were designing 15,000 square foot locations. And I think we would have become the WeWork. If I had kept the business, I think we could have morphed into what a WeWork, the workstation. Mm, that's interesting. Would have been good, good now. Yeah, now I WeWork. think we would have adapted, but I think I would have had a coronary and I wouldn't be alive if I had to keep that business. The biggest fortunes aren't made on Wall Street. They're made way before startups hit the stock market. Consider Mike Walsh, a name just like any of ours who invested $5,000 into Uber. And that investment money, it grew to a staggering $24,827,400. 
Such opportunities were once behind closed doors, reserved for those with connections and vast fortunes. But that's no more. Start Engine is tearing down those exclusivity walls and making startup investments accessible to you and me. With Howard Marks, co-founder of the gaming giant Activision at the helm, Start Engine and its 1.7 million users have fueled startups with over $1.1 billion. This is no longer just an investment platform, but an investing revolution. And it gets better. They're inviting you to be a part of their journey. With just $500, you can join their live fundraising round and own shares of this revolutionary company. Click the link in the episode description and jump on board before their investment round wraps up. Uh, it's no secret that you guys sold for $2.4 billion or something like that? Is that what no, that's what we never sold online? for enough. I sold to FedEx. I sold to the group in New York. Yeah. Oh, and then they flipped it to uh, FedEx. Oh, okay. Well, you knew they were going to flip yeah. it? Or you want to know how stupid they are, the ones in New York? Huh. People I sold to, they're Harvard, Yale, Princeton type. Is it like a private equity firm or something? Yeah, or? Clayton, Dubler, and Rice. Okay, yeah. But you want to hear how stupid they are? I'd you love know. to. <laughs> okay. They're not that stupid. Here stu- we go. <laughs> they're Princeton, Yale. Okay, every four years in our country, we have what? Uh, a new idiot in office. An election. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Do you think that maybe if they have an election, there'll be more printing, posters, and Xeroxing? Yeah. Just... Like, you don't have to take a lot of drugs. You just say, yeah. wow, dude, e- I think they're going to do that. EDDM, every door direct mail. And direct mail, all yeah. that. It would do all that. Yeah. We did have a direct mail operation. But so the year 2000, what every four years, we also have a special day in Census. February called what? Well, we have leap year. Leap year. Yeah. What's it? What most people call it leap year. What do I call it? An extra day of revenue. Owner's day. Because I pay everything by the month. So that, that year, we got 29 days. I feel like I'm in a class. What? <laughs> I feel like I'm in your class again. Yeah. <laughs> so we had 29 days. And then all of the primaries in the year 2000 were moved to March 4th. So you think February came in like a good month? Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm sure you're Armenian Orthodox, and I know you're familiar with God. Uh-huh. Well, God sometimes dies in March, and sometimes... God decides to die in April. Yeah, Easter. yeah. it's very fickle. Yeah. Well, if God decides to die in April, that makes March a good month. <laughs> we sort of want him dying in April. <laughs> okay. So if your birthday is in, say, October 5th in the year 1999, that would be a Wednesday. Yeah. After leap year, it skips two days. Friday. To Friday. Those two extra days in March were weekdays versus weekend days. You think March came in like a good month for all those various reasons? Yeah. God's death, the two extra weekdays. And you could have asked anybody in the field in that company, they would have said April would be a bad month. Yeah. I sold, I got the people in New York up $20 a share because they didn't know how to read a calendar. You think these big, lofty, big shots, the Harvard, Yale, Princeton type, they were able to, they're able to uh, read a calendar? Like, you can't read a calendar. But well, they, it's the last thing they think about. The la- well, they're just too lofty. They don't think of, they're too elitist to think of talking to a normal human being, mm-hmm. like in a store. Any r- worker in the, our business would have known April was going to be a bad So, so you, but is this like when you sold? Yeah, I got them, I got them 20 bucks a share up. In yeah. March. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you said that, like, do you feel like that was the right move at the time? 
Yeah. Like if you, I'm saying like if you held on to the company for. No, I was happy I sold. Yeah. I was happy I sold. Yeah. I had three, I had another opportunity to sell a little bit later, but I, I would think I was happy I sold. You know, it, they, it's sort of a founder when they sell their business. It's sort of like having a dog and cutting the tail off the dog an inch at a time. They gradually just wear you down. Mm-hmm. You can't stay there when you sell your business. Get the hell out and go somewhere. Is that what you did? No, I had to stay there and be tormented <laughs> for three years. About two, I guess. Yeah, three years. I feel like that's always kind of the um, was the worst deal three. That they could. Was the worst three years of my life. Because well, I mean, what were you doing? Like, were you were, taking? Oh, I was from... wa- wandering around the stores and just dealing with the. Uh... I mean, like, what are the repercussions of like not performing? You're going to fire me? Wow. I had to sit in the corner. I was allegedly chairman of the board, chairperson of the board, but I had to sit in the corner and just be tormented. Yeah. Every disgruntled worker would come to me. Every disgruntled customer would come to me. And I had no department. influence. And we had built the central office to massive amounts of employees. Yeah. Our overhead became, well, here you have, say a location would have $35,000 of the payroll. My a month. over A month. My overhead from the four walls uh, above was $17,000 a month. Mm-hmm. So basically, to manage $35,000 of the people, it cost me $17,000 a month to manage them. So my overhead was way out of line. Yeah. And I was just seething at the stupidity. Okay, you know the Catholic Church? Mm-hmm. Very efficient organization. Pope, bishop, cardinal, or priest. Yeah. Billion Catholics, two billion Catholics, not that many layers of management. We have to have five layers. Store, uh, regional manager, then district manager, uh, country manager. And then they wanted a chief of operations. So the big shot had five subordinates to the manager. I, and every time I'd go on the field during this period, I'd say, what's going on? And they would go, oh, it's not me. It's that layer up there that's a blame. It's that, it's that layer down. No one was accountable. Everybody wants to take, everybody wants somebody else to be responsible. Yeah. When I had the business, I could point a finger at just about anybody. Right. They knew they were accountable. Right. And accountability of the executive rank went out the window with the extra overhead. Oh, a lot of times they say that entrepreneurs or the founder, the person that's starting the business, isn't necessarily the best operator, isn't necessarily the business person, but it feels as though you were in the trenches building this company with your thousands, tens of thousands of employees. Were, did you teach yourself? Were you depending on others around you to, you know, teach you and learn from them essentially? Or how did how, you do that? I'm a sieve for observation and knowledge. I'm a sieve to hear and listen. You know, I, I'm lucky. I know how to be in the moment and I can really, I'm not an encumbered person. I do not have a lot of administrative duties that I have to be preoccupied mm-hmm. with. I can look at a location and see what's going on. A lot of people have encumbered eyes. Right. They're, they didn't, they're mad at themselves for not doing what they should have done yesterday. I never had that problem. I was always in the moment and observing. How, how did you do that, though? How did you manage your time to be able cap- to do that? I'm not a capable person. And I know how to get out of work. You know, I started the business. I was still going to USC for my fifth year. And I uh, worked two days a week. And after two months, I hired a manager. Wasn't that manager the chief executive officer? I've been managing executives my whole life. 
I was the owner. I conducted myself as the owner. And an owner is not accountable. They point fingers. That's the cool thing about being an owner. You're pointing fingers all the time. I was a good owner. I was never a good worker. I would never have hired myself. Who did you look up to as a business leader as you're growing the company, or if anybody? Like, who was your Uncle Nick and Uncle Emil. So you kind of looked at how they ran businesses. No, my Uncle Nick and Uncle Emil, they knew how to enjoy their life. Uh Uncle Nick and Uncle Emil said, I never missed a meal with my family. Yeah. They came back from World War II. They were bartenders. They saved their money, lived in my grandmother's house. Then they bought the bar. Then they bought the liquor store. Then they started buying real estate. And then their 50th birthday, guess what their biggest decision was every day? What am I eating? Where am I going to go for lunch? Yeah. <laughs> now, I, they, I admired the way they did their affairs. They were always cheerful, happy, and uh, they knew how to live their life. And that's what you wanted. Yeah. You, you think you're, you're a slave to your business? You're not. Your business is an instrument to make you happy, and you own it. When it ceases to make you happy, get the hell out. Yeah. Do you, do you recommend people think about that when starting something of like, how is this going to end up? I think people have to think about what they want out of life. Yep. And they don't want to get... They don't want to be, uh, you don't let your business seduce you. You own it. And the bad part is if you get seduced, I hate people when they say they love their business. Bullshit. You love your family. If you love your business, you lost your objectivity on who you are and what you want out of life. Mm. And I always kept me in the equation. I remember thinking the only thing I ever did capable in my life was Kinko. So there was this Kinko guy and there was Paul. Man, I did not want to be Kinko. I wanted to always keep Paul. Kinko was a was a conduit for Kinko was being his business Paul. person, all yeah, that. Yeah. And I did I wanted to make sure Paul was always there. Yeah. And it was a conscious decision to be Paul. Paul, not everybody can be an owner or a founder, right? And and I mean you can't have a society full of owners. You've got to have people that actually are doing the job. And not everybody wants to be an owner. When or how would one, or how should one decide, okay, I have that owner's mentality versus like the word entrepreneur gets thrown around like, you know, so yeah. easily. But being an owner, like doing what you said, right? I'm the owner. This was my vision. This was my idea. I'm going to build a team around me. I'm going to let them do their thing. How should one make that decision to become an owner? Oh, if you eat your alphabet soup, if you eat your alphabet soup alphabetically, don't be an owner. <laughs> I mean, if you're a perfectionist, because people yeah. are not as, you have to deal with the vagaries of human beings. Yeah. And you've got to examine your soul. Am I want, do I want a predictable lifestyle? Take, become a school teacher. A lot, there's so much incoming, so much ambiguity in your business, mm-hmm. and so much that tears your heart out and your mind out all day long. And if you can't handle all the ambiguity of life, do not have your own business. Mm-hmm. It's not a... a not everybody is cut out to have their own right. business. And I feel like society, I don't, we talk about this is, you know, there's all these entrepreneurship classes and now majors and schools and all this stuff. And it's such a hot topic, you know, be an entrepreneur, go start your own business. But I feel like Pat and I have reached a stage of this podcast that we mentioned it all the time on this podcast. We try to almost dissuade people and like through questions like that and hearing answers from you to not pursue it if it's not something that they really not only believe, but like, they have to become an owner. They have to become a visionary. I, I, I'll give you an example. My biggest problem in Kinko's 
was we started the business with two and three workers in a very tiny location. Yeah. The leader of those, those locations knew everything about things. Mm-hmm. The business I left 25 years later had 40, 50 workers open 24 hours a day. The biggest problem I had is the beginning workers who were good with machines and things weren't the people that were good with people. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem I had is to go from a culture based on things, leaders based that knew how to manage yeah. things, to a culture of people who knew how to manage people. Mm-hmm. And if you feel like, for an example, the Maytag repair person, the spouse says, whoa, where I hurt. The spouse says, well, you could become a manager of Maytag repair people. And he has a nervous breakdown. He or she has a nervous breakdown. They're not comfortable managing people. You got to examine your soul. Do I want the uncertainty of human beings, the uncertainty of business? Can I go to bed with all this going on and still get a good night's sleep? That's the critical test. Yeah. It's okay to have a predictable lifestyle. Yeah. For me, that wouldn't have worked. Right. Yeah. So you sell the business 2004. You were no, there no, for 2097, 1997. I started selling. You started selling. When did you ultimately oh, about like, 2023. move on? 2023. <laughs> no, 2003. 2003. Yeah. 2003, you're done. You're like starting fresh now. What do you, what do you, what do you decide to do? You're still well, a young, it's you know, interesting young guy. Is, if you notice children, some children have to always be entertained by others, and other children can always entertain themselves. Mm-hmm. I was always the kind of person that could entertain myself. Mm-hmm. I can go to a coffee shop and start a conversation. I just find the world very, very interesting and intriguing. And I've been teaching at universities since the 80s. And I like teaching. I have a foundation. I like giving away money. Uh, I really enjoy that. Yeah. And uh, I find various activities that keep me busy. What are, what are some causes you're passionate about? Single parents, hmm. by far. Where did the that amount come? of money, yeah. because we lost our first child, my wife and I. Okay. And uh, I went back to work and I became, I looked at the single parents thinking, how in the hell can they have any semblance of normality? And so that's been, what's been my cause. We have, a, in our business, we had a daycare center. We had lactation centers. And uh, we did a lot for the single parents. And that has been my cause. Hmm. And, and, when I sold the business, we got very involved in preschools in Santa Barbara County. And do Santa, uh, Santa Barbara County has 41% accredited preschools. The closest county to us in California is 8%. Hmm. And we had to fight with the government to get kids outside. Because doesn't the government and the executives of the, the managers of the day, daycare center want their kids in? They're not going to get dirty. They're not going to skin their leg. So they want them in real safe environments. Bullshit. Kids need to be outside getting dirty and skinning their legs. Eating some mud. Eating dirt. And so we had to fight the government to get that done. But fortunately, we got it done. We got involved with school food in Santa Barbara County. We, uh, uh, the food in the student cafeteria used to just be a warmer. We got uh, salad bars. We got cook from scratch mm-hmm. uh real food real food we uh, started an orthodonture program for children what Title, program orthodonture title one 
children, they, uh, we have a program where we pay for their orthodontia. And it really works. And I kind of think that uh, orthodontia gives benefit society at a compounded rate of return. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the things we're doing. And I think every child should know how to swim. Yep. We put swimming programs in. Give you an example. In 19, am I talking to you? No. In 1935 to 1955, President Roosevelt insisted we have swimming pools. It was called the golden age of swimming pools. Every child, school want that, that them Access to learn how to, to swim. Swimming pool. Yeah. We've got gone by the wayside. 50% of our inner city folks don't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. Tell me that's not a sin. Do you think I'm going to do X to the eighth power more than swim in my life? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've, we put swimming programs in. We have bicycling for children. We have uh, civility courses in our grade school programs. I want to kind of talk about your approach to teaching. You mentioned you've been teaching since the 80s. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. I thought it was more of a recent thing after you know, selling the company. Where, when, you, when you're sitting in class, again, I, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, like your approach is very different than just another professor, right? Where does that come from? And I'm curious, you know, you, I feel like business ideas and, entre, you know, entrepreneurial ideas can come in so many different ways, but having exposure to a lot of things, being in the know about a lot of things, current events, I know that's something that you're big about. Why do you do it the way you do it? Why do you teach the way you do it? Oh, because I think we're producing a bunch of damn test takers in school. Yep. Uh, a trout. We're producing a bunch of trouts that know how to take tests. Give you an example. A trout will bite the hook. 17 minutes later, their memory is only seven. They'll bite the same hook. We're producing trouts in education. A bunch of tra- test takers that don't retain the knowledge. Mm-hmm. If I tell you I teach at the university and taking microeconomics or macroeconomics, they re- major chapter headings is what the powers of the central banks are, the Federal Reserve. My students inevitably will not know, not remember it. My favorite comment from a student would be, oh yeah, I took that freshman year. Like, come on, you're supposed to take a little bit of knowledge home with you. Why do you think that is? That, that yep. this is what the American education system is like? Well, we became test takers. I mean, I'm, but why? Because we got that damn George Bush and that No Child and Ted Kennedy. They put this thing no called Child No Child Left, Left Behind. I remember that. And it's just a bunch of test takers. And, uh, was that their way of trying to create more equitable education? Was that what oh, it was? Oh, was their way of analyzing education? And why, what, the, what the hell is memorization now when you got the computer? We want critical yeah. thinkers. We're yeah. not producing critical thinking skills. Well, yeah. I'm curious about your specific approach to that. You know, you're, we, ha- we have discussions, you, like we had discussions in class. You would, you know, tell us to read the newspaper and look at what's going on. Uh, why, why, why well, that? Well, because I won't let my students take notes. Mm-hmm. And they have to sit around the table and everybody has to ask a question in a circle. So you learn, uh, you learn how to, uh, good speaking skills. Yeah. Uh, and you learn critical thinking skills. But you can't take notes. I'm convinced note takers don't get the big picture. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not getting the concept. They're getting the details, but they don't remember. And they don't, it's something about daydreaming with knowledge or getting a good night's sleep. You say, wow, I can, I can use that information. Like say you take a music appreciation course. And there's a Bach fugue. Fugue is one theme, a second theme, a third. And it's sort of like you go, wow. That's sort of like compound interest. Mm-hmm. 
If you get that just from what? Daydreaming? But daydreaming cements knowledge. Getting a good night's sleep cements knowledge. You know, it's interesting. One of my biggest gripes about law school was, and, and I recognize this on day one, was you, they give you this thousand-page textbook, and every day you're supposed to go home and memorize the case law. And I would think to myself, why do I need to memorize this in the real world? I just Google like the case or, you know, Lexis Nexus, the case. And I, my brain needs to do the thinking for me. Why do I even need to go to law school, to be honest with you, to understand this case result was that. And then I have to apply that to these facts. And it just seemed like such a mechanical approach to a career. And it, it just, it was, I was just so dissatisfied in general. I mean, same with medicine, you know, it's, you know, you see these doctors and it's like, you're not trying to heal me. You're just trying to go through your checklist because insurance companies have sued you guys so much, or excuse me, have been sued so much that you have this checklist of items, but you're not actually caring for me. No. You're just checking things off. You're, it's, a, it's a box checking society. So how do you, I mean, you know, speaking of solutions as entrepreneurs and having that entrep- entrepreneurial mindset, how do you bring entrepreneurship to education? It's so, this AI is going to, those such wonderful things for education. Guess, guess what? The teacher is going to have to talk to the student and see if they learn something. Right. Uh, what a what a mystery thing. The professor says, "Come and talk to me for a half hour for your final. I want to see what you learned here. Do you think that might be better than that bullshit I'd be a paper?" Straight A student. <laughs> well, because <laughs> if that was the case, yeah, for but sure. That, like you have to so you explain it. This, you have to this, understand. Yeah, it. yeah, you have to understand it through. If conversation. you don't understand it, you just memorize. You're not going to be able to. And so you yeah. you can't hide behind some term paper or some bullshit. Yeah. So I think AI is going to make these teachers have to talk to students. Which means that you're going to have ideally you're going to have really shitty teachers at first, and then to actually become good, you're going to have to really, really want to teach. <laughs> like, well, how about you go to these fancy four year schools? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like UC Santa Barbara, the UCs, they have professors that aren't efficient in the English language in front of a student. Crazy. And because they're a TA. But somebody in the head of the department says, well, do you speak English? Can you be a good facilitator? You would never get away with that in a junior college. You would get a much better education. You get a much better education your first two years of school in a community college where you have teachers that care about teaching. That's what we did. As opposed to the four-year auditorium classes yeah. where you cut i remember yeah. professor weaver at glendale community college shout out to professor weaver darren we- L- lever lever, lever. Yeah, darren he was lever. a geography professor geography professor I, you know i loved my professors yeah. at community college i thought that they, they were way better you know, they were kind of doing it because they loved it and they were they had a passion for the subject and they that, got paid well to that comes teach. across yeah not you know, well to write a book you, yeah you talk about ai in a, in a very optimistic way which i feel like a lot of people don't and i'm curious if you've always been that way and if you think that that's an important trait to have as a business leader, visionary entrepreneur. Well, you can't accept things for the way they are. It, it's here. It's the way it is, but you, there's, I feel like, two ways of seeing a lot of things. People are oh, scared yeah, to death about... Oh, yeah, pambies are always going to look at the negative. Yeah. But tough shit. You can't do anything about it. Right. I mean, it's there. You better adapt to it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be a great tool for society. But in general, like, would you say you're an optimist about a lot of things? I think I'm always More of a the, realist? How do you not go through life as an optimist? Yeah. How do you not view the humanity? It works. We yeah. stop at red lights. We go on green lights. It works. Yeah. I can give my itty-bitty Apple Pay. I can have air to have my transaction. Yeah. I go to the market. Look at the choices I have of plums, let alone apples, and all the various things. And you say, wow, it really doesn't work. 
bullshit. You know that all these uh, folks that watch Fox News. The Republicans? And Republican types. They'll, they're going to say, oh, the world is so violent. Did you know until COVID, violent crime and the FBI statistics, violent crime went down 50% in the last 25 years? We don't realize that. The world is safer, and it's probably safer than ever it has been. Mm-hmm. But what we hear in the media is it so violent. There's two reasons for that. As I'm a war baby, as I've aged, I'm not as strong physically. And I have more possessions. So naturally, I'm going to view the world more defensively. But in fact, the world has never been safer. It's never been better. It works, and it works well. If you have that attitude, you might have your own business to make some money. But if you look at the dysfunctionality of human beings, you're not going to make any money. You're not going to, it's not a good way to have your business. Right. So what do you do for fun these days? Oh, I, I did, you, did you see that thing about the people that live over 100, the blue zones? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, it, it was I, in the book Ikigai. I, I have a book right there. Yeah, Ikigai. It talks about yeah. that. Yeah, I'm, I kind of, I think the most important thing is not be isolated from humanity. Stay connected to your fellow human beings and uh, eat properly, exercise, and uh, surround yourself with positive people. There's so many negative namby-pambies, and especially when you get old. There's so many dour people. Get, don't deal with them. Don't hang out with them. The world yeah. is a wonderful place to be. Yeah. And it's a great, the saddest part for me to die is I'm so curious of what's going to happen. Mm. What are you excited about seeing happen? Like in, gen- in general, like what, you know, what do you kind of consume yourself with when it comes to like current events? I mean, oh, yeah. Well, AI just, is there's a good article about Armenia. It was well, the LA Times, there's a lot right? happening in Armenia, that's for sure. No, the, it was a sub page eight of the New York Times. Uh-huh. The United States and Armenia are going to do some military exercises. Well, that'd be nice because wait, wait, Armenia are. definitely needs it right now. Yeah, we are. But yeah. what is that going to do? Is that going to thoroughly piss off Russia? I feel like there's something deeper to that story that's not in that article. Because it's not only going to piss off Russia, it's going to piss off Israel, which is going to piss off Turkey, because they're all allies. I mean, that's the only reason the U.S. kind of just backs away from... Yeah, it it will piss off. But what is going on? Why? Got to keep asking questions. But do you read... Those are the things that intrigue me. Geopolitics? Geopolitics. Like, for an example, uh, Biden just went to the Indian thing, India G20 meeting. Uh On the way back... He had a rapprochement with Vietnam, and we signed some sort of trade accords. And Biden says in the speech, this is not intended to piss off China. Bullshit. So right now, the subtext could be that Apple could be boycotted in China. I thought it already was. Well, they're trying to. They rescinded it. Yeah. But right now, with Biden getting there, maybe Apple will have a problem. I'm the head of Apple. I'm going, please, Biden, why did you do this? (laughs) Um, But... Tim Apple, come the, on, bro. One of the things is that China wants the uh, factory workers that assemble the mm-hmm. Apple. Yeah. They don't want them to go to India. Right. So they have some negotiation. But those are the subtexts that are going on that I really like. Hmm. Like the Federal Reserve is going to meet next Tuesday, and they're going to make an announcement Wednesday. Uh, JP Morgan said they're not raising rates anymore. So. Well, you know. Let's see. I don't. You know, the rates are one itty-bitty tool the Federal Reserve uses. It's the one the financial committee looks at right. most. But tapering the financial statement is a much more powerful tool. They have about $8.1 trillion 
worth of U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They're selling them. Mm. So they're, as they sell it, society is basically writing checks at $95 billion a month to the Federal Reserve. Mm. They're withdrawing a great deal of money from society. And if you talk to business people, they can't get loans. That's the tool. Right. And they're not, and the financial committee is not talking about that tool. Yeah. In 1946 or 47, we had inflation at 18%, 19%. Mm-hmm. They started to pull out that money from society. Within 18 months, it went to 3%. <laughs> Tapering that statement is very, but most people don't understand that tool. They always say, well, they just print money. Or, but they don't understand what they're doing to manipulate the money supply. Right. You know, it's interesting, again, kind of to my earlier point about how uh, focused you are on understanding current events and what's happening and being able to read between the lines as it relates to finding business opportunities and finding reasons or things that you care enough about to figure out and solve problems to solve through business. And, you know, a lot of people think that they need to read business books and read about how do you, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? But your sort of approach, it sounds like is usually be in the know about what's going on in the world and those things will kind of surface themselves. Am I right in saying yeah. that? And yeah. walk with your eyes open. Yeah. So you're not a big fan of like the business books. I'm, a, I'm not a good reader. What the hell would I read? Or I don't like reading. Business, whatever. Business, oh, more like man. the blueprints of the, hey, this is how you start it. Oh, do I this, think that's do that. nice. Yeah. But you know, I mean, look at a book. Who wants to pick up this black cred and look at it when you could say, I would rather watch a, would you rather watch a movie? Yeah. Listen to a tape recorder, mm-hmm. uh, play a video game. Like you look at a child saying, Oh yeah, I want to pick up that book. Like, come <laughs> on. Don't kid wants to play, watch TV. Don't they? Well, it's yeah. much more entertaining. Yeah. But uh, I think there's all sorts of ways of acquiring knowledge. I felt like a dumb shit my whole life. Cause I couldn't read. Mm-hmm. And then I finally accepted the fact I wasn't an idiot in my forties. I would never show anybody my handwriting. I am no more than third grade speller. But besides reading like the news and newspapers, how else did you acquire knowledge? Oh, I'm a good listener. I think I'm a fairly good listener. Okay, so you would, but you would surround yourself and put yourself in places where you would learn things. Oh yeah. Where would yeah? I watch an education, be? a lot of educational television. Uh huh. Like, and I'm really interested in so A-C-E-T, many subjects. PBS and stuff. I mean, I even find botany interesting. Ha ha. So, every subject's so interesting. Anthropology, how we evolve. I, the whole damn thing's an interesting planet. Geology, how these rocks all form. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, I identify with you a lot for, in the standpoint of like, I have so many different interests and things I'm curious about, but sometimes that doesn't help when you're thinking like, what, what path do I go down in life? Like, yeah. What am I meant to sort of do when you have so many different interests? Like you're not a one-track-minded guy of like, I need to be this. I need to be a lawyer. I need to be a doctor. I need to be. How did you deal? Did you ever deal with like any sort of anxiety? Always. How'd you deal with it? What'd you do? My entire 40s, I didn't sleep well. My 40s, I was a private business. I was always worried about paying my bills and expanded 30, 35% a year. In my 40s, I had bad gas, I didn't sleep well, and my neck always hurt. I sell the business, cash the check, I sleep great, and in my 50s, my neck doesn't hurt, and I don't have any gas anymore. You think it has something to do with stress? 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I got out of the stress business. It's a killer. How did? How do you? If for people who for are your in advice, the, who are people in the who are for people who are in the stress business right now? I would do? say I follow my mother's advice. Honey, in your twenties, try everything. Put your hands in everything. In your thirties, start figuring out what you do best. Forties, make a bunch of money for what you do best. In your fifties, try not to do too much. Mm. I did follow. I sold my business when I was fifty. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I followed her advice, just like Uncle Nick and Uncle Amo. But really, you, I did not want to go to business meetings in my 50s. I didn't like it. Yeah. I would, yeah. And I never really, to be, I never trained to be, own a business. That wasn't my aspiration. I always wanted to know how to manage my savings account. And that's what I, I was really, that's what I really enjoyed the most. I happen to have Kinko's. But it was really a part of my savings account. Did that change? So good. Yeah. Did that change after? I've always liked managing my savings. Well, but I'm saying after you sold the business for a lot of money, did you? Did that change like your spending habits, or just Boy, reasonably uh, change? Uh, I've always been. I've spent a good amount of money. <laughs> yeah, but I I really feel gluttonous sometimes. How much money I spend? What do you like spending money on? Food and time. The only reason you have money is to give you a nice opulent right. time. But I mean. They have a bunch of bullshit possessions and nonsense cars. Yeah. I want experiences and I'm experienced, yeah. but they have like a thing to look at or possess. You know, it's interesting if uh, there's a whole area of psychiatry that goes to your childhood and what money means to you. Some people don't know how to enjoy their money. They're so miserly stingy. Some people can't wait like the athletes to spend it on a bunch of nonsense and go mm-hmm. broke. Some people. Uh, uh, have childhood issues with money. It causes a lot of friction. I think we have to understand what money meant to you as a child, mm-hmm. what it means to you now. For me, it meant security. Right. Yeah. That's a yeah. That's a really interesting thing. I feel like a lot of people should do that or go, you know, that type of therapy just to like understand that relationship with money because it dictates so much of our, so many of our decisions and how we like live our lives. Eighty percent of the divorces are done from financial right. things. Right. And this could be a, such a mismatch with your spouse's uh, perception of money. Like you, you're, you're raised in a modest home and you're married to somebody that can't wait to buy a Ferrari. And you mm-hmm. go, I'm, you're seething at them because mm-hmm. you know you can't, you're paycheck to paycheck. My mom and dad's biggest fights were about money. Yeah. My dad had my mother on an allowance. <laughs> and he would go out and spend money on picking up the check and being a big sport. It would, my they would have the biggest fight about my dad spending money and she being an allowance. It just totally frosted yeah. her. Yeah. So. There's a real mismatch. So. You have to have a real meeting of the minds of what money means. To yeah. you. I feel like we can sit here. I'm looking at the time and I'm like, I know we got we to gotta, we gotta cut it, but like, I would love to sit here and talk for hours with you because it's, you know, it's, been, it's been a long time and I, and I miss, maybe I'll audit one of your classes one, one of these days. Hey, come this next week. Next week, okay. I maybe, got the best you guest. You got to have, he's a magician. Okay. He uses magic. To teach our students how to communicate better. That's cool. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's you're still bringing in guests every now and then. Oh, every week. Oh, every week. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to, but this has been, uh, you know, such a pleasure, Paul. Thanks hey, thank for you. thanks for coming by. Thanks for you know taking the time to share yeah, your story. Do you want me to tell wisdom. you what success is? Yeah, please, please. There's only one measure of success in this world. You know what that is? Savings account. Your children want to be with you when they're adults. Wow. Can you imagine. You have all that fancy home and the fancy cars, and your children say, "Well, I'm not coming home for 
the holidays. Mm-hmm. That, that's wouldn't that just tear you apart? Yeah. Well, Paul, this has been such a pleasure. Hey, thank you. <laughs>